0: Welcome back to the Network 5 Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast. This is our second episode for the month on orthopaedics. We have Dr. Marise Gorgi, who is going to take us through the Crossfire trial on surgical plating versus closed reduction for distal radius fractures in older patients, published in JAMA Surgery in March 2021. We are also lucky enough to be joined by Orthopaedic Trauma Surgeon Dr. Herwig Drobetz. So Maries, I'll hand it over to you. So this is actually a very
1: well done, pretty fascinating paper that was actually done in Australia, in New South Wales. It's a particularly important topic for us because we obviously see lots of elderly patients who have had Coley's fractures and i suppose ultimately we want to know we're doing what's best for the patient when it comes to surgical risk so if you don't need a surgery should you really be having a surgery considering the risks involved in that this paper initially goes into the background and the background of it really is that this is a large problem that's only getting larger in our elderly population in australia currently wrist fractures cost 130 million dollars and the estimate is that they will only get higher they mentioned that the surgical procedures to fix these. So the volar locking plate fixation has become the most common way to treat this. But a lot of people are only doing this based on personal preference as opposed to an evidence-based practice, which is why they've gone about and created this paper. So this paper asks the question, which is whether in adults 60 years or older with dorsally angulated displaced distal radius fractures, VLP fixation was superior to close reduction with respect to patient-reported pain and function at 12 months after treatment. They had some secondary aims, which I won't really go into. But the most important thing, and I agree with them, is what's going on at 12 months time. How's the pain? What's the function like? So basically, from December the first, 2016, to December 31st, 2018. They screened 300 eligible patients, 166 consented to be randomized, and then they actually took the rest of them and put them in an observational study, which I thought was particularly excellent. So we know what happens to the people that even choose not to be in the study. They published the protocol that they were using before they actually collected all their data, which also showed that they really thought about this study and did well. So the study was a pragmatic multi-center study that recruited participants from 19 sites across Australia and New Zealand. Eligible patients were invited to participate and they were then randomized either surgical fixation or non surgical treatment at a one to one ratio. And like I mentioned, those who declined went into an observational cohort. The follow up was identical for everyone. The eligibility criteria included whether they were 60 years older if they presented within one week of injury with a distal radius fracture, and that fracture needed to be either extra articular or complete articular. And you needed initial fracture displacement greater than 10 degrees dorsal angulation, greater than three millimeters shortening, or greater than two millimeters articular step. Were medically fit for surgery, were living independently, and had a low energy injury. They excluded anyone who was unable to consent, a fracture with volangulation, or partial articular fracture, and any other injuries of any other body part, open fractures, or previous ipsilateral wrist fracture. They randomised using a computer. They obviously couldn't blind the people that were actually the surgical investigators, and they couldn't blind the patient because obviously they don't know whether or not they had surgery. But they did blind those that were doing the collecting the data and the statisticians, which I thought was pretty good. If you can blind anyone, do it. I suppose. What were their results like? Basically, they found that there was no clinical difference between both groups at the twelve month mark. The way they measured this was based on a primary outcome on a patient-rated risk evaluation questionnaire, which was administered 12 months after injury. So this questionnaire is risk-specific. There's 15 items, which I won't get into, and it it talks about patient-reported measures of pain and function and uses a continuous score and converts it to a 0 to 100 point scale. And it's been validated for use in patients with distal radius fractures within their analysis they showed that the baseline characteristics for each group were the same which was good so the randomization was really good in their sub analysis they did see slight differences between them but nothing that they thought was clinically relevant so for example the patient thought reported treatment success after plate at 12 months while the closed reduction group thought that they had less patient reported treatment success despite their scoring being similar they also noted that between the groups the main difference between those that were randomized and those that weren't randomized was that those that weren't randomized had a strong preference for what they wanted which also makes a lot of sense so ultimately this study showed that there was no difference at 12 months between those that received a surgical intervention and those that had a closed reduction which i think would
0: be interesting for clinical practice Thanks, Marie. That was a really good summary of that article. I guess you've kind of covered some of the strengths and limitations as you've gone through there. So I'll just jump straight into some of my initial thoughts on the paper. I found this patient rated risk evaluation score, although like really good that we're basing our decisions on actual patient outcome and satisfaction, I think that's really good. I was a bit interested in how they managed to establish that 14 points was the point of clinical significance, particularly because at the three-month follow-up point, there was, I think, a mean difference of about nine points between the two groups, which they deemed to be clinically insignificant. I just found it interesting. I don't know how they managed to get 14 points as their kind of marker for clinical significance. I don't know if the orthopods had any thought on where they managed to get that from or whether they've just drawn a line in the sand because they had to somewhere?
2: I was wondering the same thing and they didn't mention why they used 14 points. Usually what you do is you use 20% difference in scores as a clinical significance difference. I've done this in my studies and that seems to be what everybody else does but I think I can remember because this study has about 10 appendices and i think i remember reading in one of the appendices that they used the 14 points because other studies also used it but that still doesn't tell me why 14 points is a clinically significant difference
0: by the 12 12 point, point there was really not that much difference between the two groups anyway but i just thought that was kind of an interesting thing to raise i guess another question that came to my mind maybe a slightly controversial one is that you know, for the closed reductions for these patients, they were performed by orthopaedic doctors either in the emergency department or in theatre. And I just wanted to kind of throw it out to the floor as a bit of a controversial question. Do we think that the outcomes would be the same if ED practitioners were getting more involved in these reductions? Or do we think that if we're going to take this approach of the closed reduction being the definitive management for the patient, we really should have the orthopaedic doctors involved in that reduction in ED?
3: The obvious answer is the outcomes would not be the same. I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Like, I'm not a close reduction specialist. I'm okay at doing risk reductions by virtue of the fact that I've done a lot of them. And, you know, lucky enough to have some orthopedic registrars as friends who helped me when I was a registrar to get better at them. I don't even think I'm as good at them now as I was a year ago, because I can't remember the last time I did one. You're right. If it's going to be the definitive management, then what that demands is the system come up with an alternative model of care where this is the facilitated approach. It can't just be an ED reduction is end of the game. And I'm not saying that ED doesn't have a role to play in terms of upskilling its staff and getting better at reductions. I sometimes wonder how pragmatic that is in places where I work, given that, for example, like most of my shoulder reductions are done now without anesthetic or analgesia outside of some intranasal fentanyl because oftentimes i'm reducing them in the triage bay because there are just no resuspects so i wonder then what something like a facilitated closed reduction would look like in a timely fashion done well done properly that's a controlled environment that may or may not exist in the ED. so should orthopedics be more involved well that's a systems issue half the time anyway but i think in an ideal world I would advocate for there being some oversight, either some sort of you know protocolized training for ED seniors to be able to understand what they're actually doing, because I'd put to you that most of them probably don't know. Or the other alternative would be you know some sort of orthopedic service that facilitates this management. But you know I'm open to to hear other people's points of views. As an
4: orthopedic registrar, if you, we are doing reductions, obviously we do do them sometimes in ED, but a lot of the time you actually do have the image intensify, so the X-ray machine there to tell you you've got it reduced properly. So in some regards, a lot of the doctors in ED potentially have more experience in reducing them, looking at them. I know some people use ultrasound. I've seen that used by or been told about it by some of the ED registrars to help with their reductions. But actually doing it blind is actually done more commonly by the emergency doctors. There so it would be interesting to see. If there was a study comparing reductions done by the orthopaedic registrars compared to the emergency doctors, um, obviously we do. That's our bread and butter, it's our area, but similar to shoulder reductions, we're only called when there's a difficult one. And I'd say I have a lot less experience in reducing shoulders in emergency than probably everyone else on the the call here, because the only time I'm called is when it's been unsuccessful, and then sometimes it is unsuccessful again when we try
1: I mean, the other thing with this study, actually, is that if they didn't have space in ED, they were going to go do it in theaters. And I was like, huh, I wonder what number of these were actually done in theaters. And we have no idea. I don't think it's it's in the study anywhere unless you guys found it. So really, even with sedation and local, they're saying we don't know what, how many of them were done that way or how many of them were actually done in a beautiful theater set up with an image intensifier. So,
2: I think you're too modest, guys. I think if you would reduce it, it would have the same outcome. I'm pretty sure. I think radius fractures are very benign. So they're the most common fracture in the human skeleton. They're easiest to reduce. Everybody can reduce the distal radius fractures. They're super easy to reduce, but they're the most difficult to keep reduced because they don't want to stay reduced. So that's the problem. So this study is definitely the best study that has ever been done on the prospective, randomized, controlled, half-blind treatment of distal radius fractures in Australia. And I'm not saying this because I'm one of the authors of this study. I have to say it. But there were lots of discussions about these results. So we had lots of email discussions. First of all, it started with funny detail at the side. It started with inclusion age 65. So then they found out that we can't get enough patients recruited. But then they lowered it to 60. Then we had this huge discussion because many authors were close to 60. They didn't want to be considered elderly, right? Of course not. And it took about three years to recruit 166 patients for the randomized arm and the other, I don't know what it is, 140 patients for the observational arm in 19 hospitals in Australia. So we should have seen I don't know, maybe 5,000 fractures in this time. I don't know. This is now, uh, whether this number is right, but, but we should have, we have seen way more, right? But we only managed to recruit 166 in 19 hospitals. And we were actually the hospital that recruited most of them in Australia because of obviously had an interest in this study. That means there is quite a high bias in who got recruited for this study and who didn't get recruited. And that may or may not skew the results. Number one. Number two, more than 60% or 60% were A-type fractures in the randomized arm. So that means they are articular fractures that are usually considered less severe and then consultants would have said, okay, this patient can go into the study. If they are more severe, then they should have an operation. And that's completely confidence-based. That's not evidence-based. So I think the natural distribution of distal radius fractures is there's more articular fractures in the elderly population, there are C fractures. About 60%, as far as I know, 40% are extra In this study, it's completely the other way around. And the result was clear because that was what every other study shows. After one year, it doesn't matter what you have done. The results are the same. That goes for clavicle fractures, for distal radius fractures. That even goes for tibia fractures. After one year, it doesn't matter what you have done the results are the same but the question is what is it in this first 6 to 12 weeks and the study showed that they are better in the first 6 to 12 weeks right and again that's what every other study shows as well and what they didn't say is and what really is close to my heart because that's I have some I have some credibility in this field because I did a PhD in distal radius fractures so I have some and we were the first ones to put volar-locking distal radius plates in patients in the world 25 years ago. So we invented these plates. So I have it's close to my heart. What nobody says in these studies is, and in all these studies is, a volar-locking plate is still the only treatment that allows me to treat the patient post-op without a cast. There's no other treatment. So these patients can go and can use their wrists immediately. They can do cartwheels if they want, because that plate is actually really strong if you put it in the right way. So, but nobody says that. And this is what I think, that's what I try to tell my patients. Listen, we can do it non-operatively, we can operatively, after one year, it's all the same. You will have a really good outcome if it's non-op, but if you want to use your wrist immediately, then an operation might be better. And that may help elderly patients to stay independent, and it may help young patients to go back to work faster. That's always the same discussion.
3: If it's going to be the definitive management, it needs to be, you know, definitive. I would challenge other ED specialists to say that they are confident in their competency. I'm certainly not. And it's just the nature of the job. I don't do any fracture reductions anymore. Most of my work in tertiary emergency departments is structural and then maybe some acute resuscitations and I'll be supervising some registrars doing things. I don't know. I don't think I'm as good as I was when I finished my training because I used to do a lot more as a registrar than I do now. I mostly give the drugs rather than do the reductions. So I think your other point is actually really important and was something that I was going to mention. I don't know if a 12-month score is really something that I would necessarily be considering as the be-all and end-all of the efficacy of the treatment, particularly with the patient population we're talking about. You have people with very high frailty index often who have these falls and functional assessment immediately afterwards is, I think, an important measure of how useful a treatment is. And so that's something that I think about as well when we look at these non-operative managements. You're sending 80-year-old people home with a plaster on their arm and you know they require a significant amount of rehabilitation to become functional. And then we know that at that age, the slower you are to regain your functional capacity, the less likely you are to go back to baseline. And so I, I wonder if some of those impacts would Alter the decision making process and i think that's a very reasonable comment to make when it comes to this study
2: i'm sure it has because many people were not included in this study it took so long to include 166 patients so lots of people The decision was made before they were considered for inclusion in the study and um also what anthony said is, is is right we are the masters of reducing things with an image intensifier we need an image orthopedic surgeons need two things an image intensifier and a hammer and we can solve any problem but we are not that good at reducing things with other image intensifiers so you are actually much better at that and the other thing is what was not mentioned in this study is non-operative treatment is extremely involved it's not easier it's not just waking a cast on and then wait for four weeks and that's it it's very involved the patients need to come back every week they need to have new casts and then when they get a cast in the fracture clinic that cast is usually not as good Nobody does a proper reduction because it's painful. Radhi, It's a very, very involved treatment. It's not easier. And it also, so when the patient lives 200 kilometers away, it's probably not the right treatment, then it's better to put a plate in and they can do a telehealth follow up. You can't do this with a cast. And that was a bit of an issue in COVID times. Of course, everybody was casted and then out. And then we had a huge problem with who does now the next cast. It's not easier.
1: Bearing that all in mind that actually there's a lot involved in going on operatively. Do you think their estimates of it being tenfold more expensive to have surgical treatment and actually an overcall?
2: I don't know. We need to look at everything. If they really go back to work six weeks faster, then we need to factor that in, right? Because then they earn money and contribute and pay taxes six weeks faster and then not on sick leave. If they have to come back to the clinic six times versus one time, that's also a cost factor. And I'm not sure whether these factors have been factored in in all these studies. I mean, of course, it's expensive. The plate is two and a half thousand dollars, right? It's not. It's not a cheap, a cheap treatment. But if I then have never have to see the patient again, it might at the end. And again, it's you. You find all sorts of papers. I find I can give you ten papers that show that casts are much cheaper and much better for the patients, and then there is ten papers that show that the plate is much cheaper and much better. And I'm not saying either of these papers are wrong or biased, but uh, I can find arguments for both. It's very, very difficult to do randomized controlled studies in orthopedic trauma because there are so many moving parts: patient, doctors, surgeons, plates. Different injuries by so many moving parts that you then can make, and we never get enough numbers. It's not a lot, 160 patients, that's not a lot to say anything. If you want to bring out a new antihypertension tablet and you test it on 166 patients, and the results then is gospel, you can never do that. So it's very difficult. So then it comes down to individual decision and try to find what is best for this patient at this time of their life. And you try not to talk the patient into it and you try not to talk the patient out of it because many patients have an idea what they want. But I still think that you guys do Really good reductions in it.
4: Following on from Herwig and Pramod's points about early mobility, the other side of it is this study only looks at results at 12 months. So for a lot of these patients termed elderly who are you know between 60 and 70 and still working, they've potentially got another 20, 30 years of life. So to, And I can't see whether there's a plan for longer follow-up with this, but two, five, 10-year follow-up, it would be interesting to see the functional scores at that point and people who are managed non-operatively who potentially need operations for arthritis or other complications of it in the longer term rather than just the 12 month mark.
2: They did just publish the two year results just recently, and it's exactly the same. So the scores were all not significantly different, but more patients were thinking that treatment was more successful with plates than with non operative treatment, but it was not considered clinically significantly different. So my. Like. But then we can have a discussion, what is more important? Is it the patient-reported outcome measures? Is it subjective? Is it objective parameters? That's a never-ending discussion.
0: Just kind of following on from that, if we're thinking about the risk profile of each different treatment option, if you exclude the anesthetic risk from the plating, is there many other risks we should be considering? from a surgical point of view versus the closed reduction. And then with the closed reduction group, I did see a few that had to cross over to the surgical intervention who then appeared to have slightly higher risks of deep infection or implant failure rate at a later stage. So I guess if you're trying to present all the risks to a patient who's very much neutral, what kind of things should we be considering outside of the anaesthetic risk?
4: As we've discussed, obviously, the functional status is important, but we've had a, a bit of a discussion about that already. Obviously, with any surgical intervention, there's generalized surgical risk, but specific ones related to volar plating come down to you can irritate and even have ruptures of the pollicis longus postoperatively, and that depends on the position of the plate and a few other factors, but that's something that we have in the back of our mind and also damage to structures around there. So the median nerve can have aberrant branches that are right where you would uh, operate surgically. It's not where it's classically described, but it's something you need to be careful of and can theoretically get damaged. There are some things that look at increased risk of a CRPS a pain response following surgical intervention. Those are the main sort of surgical specific but what we normally do particularly in Lismore is yeah talk about both the options and you know you can definitely sway a patient one way or other depending on what you thinks best but ultimately leave the decision up to them.
0: Thank you. And with regards to closed reductions, are there many risks that we need to consider other than a potentially slower recovery, I guess, failure of that reduction?
4: It's functionally related to the patients. Pramod touched on it, but If you're sending an elderly patient home with, with the cast, high risk of falls. And then, yeah, there's the fracture specific related complications with you've just mentioned.
2: If you have a male union and then you want to cross over to an operation, then it's much more difficult to make it look good on the x ray. Once it's healed in the wrong position, it's a much more difficult operation. And that is probably the reason why they have more complications, right? And more deep infections because the operation takes much longer and so on. I still think we do operate too many. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not a. I'm not a proponent of everybody should have an operation. I still think we operate too many, but we are not good with treating them non-operatively. We are not treating them well. We are not doing good cast after the first cast. We are not seeing them often enough, and so on and so on. So it it has to be a balance. Obviously, we can't put everybody on the theater table, but if we treat them non-operatively, we need to treat them well. And this is where where I have troubles. Um, We don't do that well.
4: When we talk about options for fractures that have malunited, united they're all we tend to turn them salvage options you're trading one thing for the other so you're you're trading pain for you know lack of movement so with things like fusions, so they they're definitely salvage options rather than gold standard we can come back and make it perfect later on so it is something that needs to be kept in mind
1: i might be changing the topic a little bit but i'm just wondering if you guys as orthopods have any tips on actually doing a closed reduction of a wrist
2: three things happen when you have a broken distal radius. First of all, it gets shorter, then it's usually displaced to the dorsal side, and then when you look at it AP, the thumb goes towards the forearm. It sinks radially, and this is because the brachioradialis muscle pulls the fragment into radial. And these are the three things you need to counter. It's very simple. The fracture always tells you what to do anyway. So you need to lengthen it, you need to push from here, and you need to make sure that your thumb is in extension with your forearm then you usually have a good reduction. So lengthening is you need to pull. And what we used in other hospitals and what is very common in Europe, but not very common in Australia is you get Chinese finger trap. Do you know what Chinese finger traps are? They are these these things we put on the fingers. Yes, and we can pull. We hang the patient on a gallow and we put a two kilogram weight there. And that traction's the fracture out and reduces your length. And you let them hang there for two, five, 10 minutes. Have a coffee see some other patient, blah, blah, blah. Once they're hanging, they're not in pain because the fracture is stable. That lengthens the fracture and then you just have to push dorsally. You mold the cast so that the fracture can't fall back and then make sure to hang them up on the thumb only and that also gives you this direction. Super simple. Everybody can learn this in two and a half minutes. Cast, bandage, go home. Come back to the fracture clinic. The way it's done in Australia is that we don't have Chinese fingertips, so then you need actually three people to do a proper reduction. One needs to yeah. pull at the elbow, one needs to pull at the thumb, one needs to pull the cast on. That's a lot of manpower, which nobody has.
4: And the importance of that thumb is something that we use in surgery as well. When we're struggling to get the height back is because of the pull of that r- brachioradialis, we sometimes release that. So I think that just sort of stresses that it really is a key part of it getting the height back is tractioning out through the thumb to counteract the pull of the brachioradialis.
0: Trying to apply this study overnight clinically in ED, if we have an elderly patient that comes in. With a distal radius fracture that looks like it would meet the criteria we've discussed in the paper today should we be kind of leaving that patient for formal discussion with the orthopods in the morning mindful that we don't want to sedate them too many times should we be trying to do a definitive reduction overnight and then discussing it with the orthopods in the morning how should we kind of approach that considering that the closed reduction could be their definitive management and that that's going to need further discussion with the patient and the treating team in the morning
2: So I strongly believe that every patient should be treated as if it's the definitive treatment and it's non-operative. So I think every patient needs the best possible reduction they can get when they come in because then everybody can take a breather and then we can have a decision on what we do whenever. If it's not reduced for 24, 48 hours, then I'm already forcing my hand because then it gets a bit more difficult to reduce it and to talk the patient into non-operative treatment or not to talk them into it, but to go down this pathway. And also the patient can have a heart attack and then I can't do an operation. Then the wrist is not reduced, all these things. So they deserve the best possible reduction. And whether that's ed or whether that's the orthopedic registrar doesn't really matter that's up to each hospital system and so on but they should have best possible reduction so then everything is still open and every other treatment avenue is open or they get lost in the system and they go home without a last time we had one who was sent home without a cast because somebody told her she gets an operation anyway and then she was sent home without a cast it's frowned upon you know (laughs) i didn't like
3: how you want to run an ed in an ideal world is you want to be providing the same level of care from an emergency department point of view 24 7. so what would you do at 3 p.m is exactly what you should be doing at 3 a.m when it comes to the individual patient right there are millions of other factors you can't account for and the system is not obviously a 24 7 system but in terms of your clinical decision making when it comes to providing patients with the most efficacious treatment options you should be thinking about it that way and you should try and make things work in that way as best as possible so when it comes to facilitating a closed reduction i would say if the patient needs it the patient needs it and you should just do it because the patient needs it then the success of that reduction and more specific conversations can be had later that's that's a secondary issue and then i suppose the question you have to ask yourself is how do you safely facilitate a reduction now that might look different at 3am versus 3pm you know you might opt for a hematoma block because you don't have enough staff to do an airway support you know overnight and you might not have a resus day so etc so there's there is finesse when it comes to the how but the why and the what i think should remain the same That's what your job is as a senior ED clinician. You should upskill yourself to that level so that you can provide that same level of care. Because we're the only people who are around all the time, so we can't. We're not allowed to be different at different times of the day, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, thanks, Pramod. That makes a lot of sense. It's a very good way to think about it. I feel like that was a really good discussion. Just kind of thinking about all the different factors that play into these decisions. It's not just about the X-ray or one specific component of the presentation. So I think that was really helpful to kind of work through. Thank you, everyone. Before we finish, Marisa, are you happy to give us your take-home points from the discussion in the paper?
1: I thought the point that I took from it was that at 12 months, there seems to be no difference between a closed reduction and an operative management of a distal radius fracture. For me, it does mean that you need to weigh up the pros and cons for each individual patient, which seems to be the conclusion of the discussion that we've had today. I guess talking about it on a wider level, at some point, somebody needs to do the proper mathematics to see what's actually better for society. But I don't think that's what we care about as clinicians. I think as clinicians, we should care about the individual patient in front of us, making sure that they're getting the best possible care. The conclusion that we can reach is that for some patients, those that need to mobilise quicker, use their arm quicker, go to work quicker. Sometimes for them, maybe the operative management is the better choice. And for those that may not need that and yet able to function, maybe they could go with a closed reduction because it seems to be equivalent.
0: That concludes our second part of the orthopaedic series for this month. Thank you everyone for your valuable input and thank you to everyone tuning in from home. As always, we would love to hear your feedback and any questions you may have. You can contact us via our email, westmeadedjournalclub at gmail.com. Stay tuned for the final part of the orthopaedic series. We will be discussing appropriate imaging modalities in pelvic trauma. And I must say, the findings definitely surprised me.